Good morning. So, it's been a while since you've seen me up here. And you know what? Today was not the day you were supposed to see me up here, actually. Uh, but Zach got sick the second half of the week. And so, Friday afternoon, was asked to step in, uh, which I readily and joyfully uh, was willing to do. Now, he did, uh, thankfully, he was far enough along in this, uh, his preparations that he was able to hand me some notes. Um, and so I am using those today, but I made them a little bit my own. So if you like the sermon, it was all me. If you don't like the sermon, it was all Zach. He offered to let me borrow his black suit and black tie, but I said, no, I think I'm good. I did wear the black sweater, though, so you wouldn't feel too uncomfortable with me up here this morning. So we are entering into the Advent season, and um, this sermon, in all seriousness, uh, has been prepared for some time. Uh, at the beginning of the calendar year, when Mark and Zach were planning out the sermon passages for the, for the rest of the year, they, were, uh, they put this on the calendar early, and they were very excited uh, for this Advent series. Zach was a little bit disappointed that he wouldn't be able to be here with you today. And so um, we're grateful for his hard work and his uh, preparation um, this morning. So today marks the beginning of the Advent season. And we are beginning our Advent series on John the Baptist entitled, Prepare the Way. Now, Advent reminds us that God's ways are mysterious, are they not? When God enters into this world and he works in the lives of people, he does so oftentimes through overcoming obstacles, impossible circumstances, hopeless situations. He reveals his power through our problems. He shows his presence when it seems as though he's absent. His light shines when things seem like they are at their darkest. So here in Luke chapter 1, Israel is living in dark times. Let me set the scene for you. 400 years have passed since the final words of the Old Testament were written, and no prophet has arisen since. 400 years is a long time. Think about 400 years in our country's history. The Roman Empire now rules the world, and they've placed a heavy hand on people. And King Herod, who's not even a Jew, is the puppet king of the Roman Empire placed over Israel. And he is a paranoid, suspicious and murderous man. He's jealous towards anyone who might take his power, even babies, as we'll come to find out soon enough. Now, the Jewish people wanted nothing but to be free and govern themselves and their own land. But there were division among the Jews. How do we do this? How do we go about this? God's been silent for all these years. What do we do? What does he expect from us, his people? 400 years of silence has created spiritual famine in the land. Factions have arisen around what they should be doing. So some have decided the best, uh, the best course of action is to cozy themselves up to the Roman Empire, right? Others have turned inward. 
They've gone inside their ivory tower, cut themselves off from the everyday struggles of their people through intellectual isolation and study. And then in the dark corners of the kingdom, there are those planning violent, violent revolution. Israel's lost. They're in a spiritual wasteland. They had forgotten God's promises and they'd forsaken his ways. Even the temple of God was now a marketplace. And demon possession is rampant throughout the land. Have you ever noticed that? Read all your Old Testament. No demon possession. All of a sudden, 400 years of silence, we enter into this new period, the beginning of the New Testament, beginning pages of the New Testament, demon possession after demon possession after demon possession after demon possession. What in the world was going on? Spiritual darkness had taken over the land, right? It had taken over God's people. And this is where our story today begins, up in the hills of Jerusalem, in the place that Israel's ancient prophets said one day God himself would come and establish his kingdom over all the earth. It's in this city that there is a temple, and the temple's run by priests. One of them was named Zechariah, and he was serving because it was his priestly, his division's priestly rotation. Now, Zechariah, the passage tells us, was married to a woman named Elizabeth, who was also from a line of priests. And Luke tells us they were righteous people who were devoted to the Lord, and they walked in his ways. But we know something else about them, don't we? For years, decades, they've lived with a heartbreaking problem. And it's a problem that some of you are only too familiar with. They've never been able to have the children that they so desperately desired. Elizabeth was barren, and they'd grown old now and were well past the age of being able to have children. Now, in their culture and in their day, this also meant that they lived in shame because childlessness, like it or not, whether it's true or not, was considered a curse. And so Elizabeth was that woman, the one who wasn't good enough, the one who she and her husband must have some sort of secret sin or else God would give them a child, right? And so they would have grown accustomed to the judgmental eyes of others. But on the Temple Mount, where Zechariah now is, the hour of incense has come. What's that? Well, this is when a priest would enter the holy place and burn fresh incense on the altar. It's pretty straightforward. It's what it sounds like. But in the Bible, incense uh, is the aroma of worship. It's the aroma of God's presence. It also represents the prayers of God's people going up to heaven, to God's throne, and rising to him as a pleasing aroma. So... The priest would enter in, burn incense, smoke would billow up out of the top of the temple, and he would pray for the nation of Israel. And when the people outside and the surrounding area saw that smoke rising up, they too were supposed to join in prayer. So this only happened a few times a year. So it was a big deal. 
And the priest who got to go in was selected by the casting of lots. Now, there were almost 20,000 priests serving in the day of Zechariah. And the incense was burned not very often. So to be selected and to have your lot cast was literally a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And even if you ever were selected, from that point on, you were never allowed to do it again. Your name was taken out of the hat. So most, pri- most priests never even saw the inside of the holy place. So this was the most exciting day of Zachariah's life. Everything had been leading up to this. This day, his lot was cast. He won the priestly Powerball, if you will. Zachariah, come on down. It was an extraordinary honor. It would be the highlight of his career. He peaked. This was it, right? So when he goes in, he's excited. He's wearing his special robes that have bells on the bottom, just in case there was any secret sin in his heart and God struck him down and they could pull him out. He had the rope around his ankle, right? He goes in. He begins his priestly duties. Nothing could be better than this. This is what he lived for. Here's his opportunity. But then... But then, right in front of him, what happens? An angel, an angel appears. And not just any angel, an archangel, an archangel named Gabriel. And as you can imagine, he's terrified, right? Now, we all know, right? The reason this angel here is here is he's going to announce a baby, right? No, that's not what this angel is doing. Yes, it is what he's doing, but that's not all he's doing. We know also this is the same angel that maybe a month from now is going to arrive uh, and announce another baby to a teenage girl, right? But this is also the angel that John tells us in the book of Revelation will come again to blow the trumpet and announce the return of Christ. So this angel is a special angel who only turns up at turning points, at unveilings, when God is doing new things in human history, when something old is ending and something new is beginning. So Gabriel is here after 400 years of silence to announce that God is setting in motion the culmination of all things. And so what does he say? He says, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. You will have joy and gladness, for he will be great before the Lord. Okay, so this day just keeps getting better and better, doesn't it? Can you imagine what it would have been like that night when he went home to Elizabeth? How was your day, sweetie? A little bit, a little bit of a life-changing experience, right? Um, And Gabriel tells... Zachariah, that this baby boy who's about to be born is not going to be an ordinary baby, right? Even though John hasn't entered our story yet, Gabriel gives us a picture of what he'll be like and what he'll do. What does he say? He says, he must not drink wine or strong drink. Why? Well, first, because John's a priest. He's from a priestly line, And they were not allowed to drink wine or strong drink whenever it was time for their division to be in service. So John will be a priest whose service is ongoing, right? He's never allowed to drink any wine or strong drink because he's set apart 
as a constant, to constantly priestly serve before the Lord. But not just that. Second, we know, because we've read our Old Testaments, that whenever the command from the Lord comes like this, to not drink any strong drink or wine in a birth announcement, just like Samson and Samuel in the Old Testament, that it's referring to what is called a Nazarite vow, right? It means that their parents are called to make a vow before the Lord that from their child's birth, they believe that God has set them apart for a special purpose. So this Nazarite vow meant that they would, in their life, never drink any alcohol, they would never go near a dead body, and they couldn't cut their hair. So in short, John would have looked like a wild man. If any of you read uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible to your kids, you've got this picture of uh, this guy, right? And uh, you've got a little bit of honey hanging out of his mouth, right? He's all unshaven. His hair's uncut. He lives in the wilderness. He eats locusts. His beard's unshaven. He would have been a sight to behold, right? He was a priest of God, yes, but he was a priest that didn't look like he belonged in this world at all. He also would be a fiery prophet. The angel said he would go before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He would call out injustice. He would cast judgment on false worship. He would prophesy against false power. But through it all, it wouldn't just be judgment for judgment's sake. He'd be leading the people back unto the Lord, preparing the way for the Lord. He would come and preach truth that would prepare and make them ready for God's coming. But this sermon's not about John the Baptist, is it? So it's about his dad, Zechariah. So Zechariah, here he is in the holy place, an angel standing right in front of him. And he hears this extraordinary good news. Zechariah, the Lord has brought purpose to your suffering. He sees you in your sorrow. Your son will prepare the way for the living God. He hears it. And what does he say? He says, how shall I know this? I'm an old man. My wife's advanced in years. In other words, Zechariah says, give me a sign. I don't believe you, right? I don't believe this could possibly come true. Now, if we allow for angels ever to get a little bit annoyed, this is probably one of those moments, right? Uh, Zechariah, look at me. I am your sign, right? What about all this isn't enough? I'm Gabriel. I'm an archangel. I office in the throne room of God. And I bring a message from him to you. What else do you want? But Gabriel and his patience says, you want a sign that these things will come to pass? I'll give you a sign. Here's your sign. You will be silent. You will be unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Zacharias struck mute. Now, many commentators, myself included, believe that he was also struck deaf. Why? Because later in the story, uh, they have to sign to Zechariah when they're asking about John's name. They have to sign to him to communicate with him. So that doesn't make any sense unless he's also lost his hearing as well. So this will be your sign, Zechariah. You will be deaf 
and mute as a sign that these things will come to pass. Now, Zechariah receives all this good news about God's redemptive power and his work. God's showing up in the most extraordinary way. God's chosen him. After 400 years, no prophets, no talking. All of a sudden, God brings his word through an angel, shows up to him, and yet it's met with unbelief. The obstacles and painful circumstances in his life had become so normal, he had internalized these things, had become such a part of his own narrative that he told himself over and over again that they were all he could see. They they cast a long, long shadow over his faith. Zechariah was not ready. He was not prepared for the Lord. Now, I'm not here to beat him up today because I think Luke was purposeful in the way he starts his gospel with this story. Maybe Luke starts his gospel in this manner because he knew that we all need to see ourselves as Zechariah. We're all Zechariah. He's showing us something about ourselves. How so? Well, I want you to notice the irony in all this. What God promised to do for Zechariah and Elizabeth wasn't anything new, was it? Zechariah was a priest. He knew these stories. He knew about God telling Abraham and Sarah in their old age that they would have a son. He knew the other stories in Scripture, the stories of barrenness, where God turned a womb from being a place of death into a place of life, into a place of significance. He knew how God had revealed his power over and over and over again to his people through impossible circumstances, but he didn't believe that God could reveal himself in his circumstances, right? That's a tricky place. It's that place that he found himself in where belief and unbelief slam together. I believe the things you've done for others are true. I just don't believe they could be true for me. And right there is where we have to stop for a moment. We have to drill down and figure out what's at the bedrock of Zachariah's unbelief. He didn't doubt the reality of an angel standing right in front of him. That was not called into question at all, right? He didn't doubt that God could do exactly what the angel said. He knows God had done what the angels had said in the past, right? And yet what he doubted was the very nature and character of God himself. He won't do that in my life. Are we all that different? We know the stories of the Bible too, don't we? We've heard of the God of the Red Sea, the God who created all things from nothing. We've heard of the God who makes demons flee, floods the earth, raises the dead, the God who entered into death and robbed the grave, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Joshua, Samuel, David, the God of Tamar, Hannah, Ruth, Rahab. We know the stories. We even know this story, right? This is nothing new. I'm not telling you anything you haven't heard. The story of God making himself nothing, becoming a bondservant, entering the world as a baby for the salvation and life of humanity. Good news of great joy for all people. But when life gets hard, 
or the circumstances that surround us get turned upside down, our faith tends to crumble. I want you to think about the Christmas season, right? We all work so hard to create the perfect experience for ourselves and our family, right? The perfect tree, perfect lights, perfect presents, perfect parties, perfect holiday picture card. Get that family in their flannel best. Get them in front of that tree, right? Our very own Hallmark Christmas every year, over and over again, right? But behind the scenes, how do we feel? Behind the scenes, we're drowning in anxiety. There's worry. There's financial stress. We're faced with a family that maybe we haven't had to see in a while, and now we're going to have to see them again, right? We are reminded of what the holidays mean for us and all the baggage that they carry uh, from our own heartaches and failures over the years, right? And so we try and cope. And it's just a microcosm of what's going on all year, wrong, all year long. We constantly are obsessing with the problems that are consuming us. We're trying to deal with it, trying not to drown, trying to do our best to control the situations, to fix it, right? To work all the angles. And then when we can't cope, what do we do? We turn to our vices, our guilty pleasures, right? We just turn it off and try to escape. Even though we know all the stories, we know all the stories of how God has cared for his people, we still lack faith. We aren't driven to him in prayer and dependence and rest. So now the other irony I want to point out, though, is found in what Zechariah is doing. It's, he's doing the exact same thing that we're here doing this morning, right? All this happens when he's engaged in the liturgy of worship. He's entered in the holy place to offer incense and prayers on behalf of God's people. He's inches away from the holy of holies. But he's just going through the motions. His heart lacks the vibrancy of faith despite the very fact that he is going through with all the activities of worship. The angel says, your prayers have been answered, Zechariah. And he doesn't believe it. Doesn't hit too far from the mark, does it? We're sitting here by the table, going through the liturgy of worship. Zachariah is in that same place. He knows all the stories too. Stories that are supposed to build his faith to remind him by remembering what God has done, who God is, and what he's capable of doing in the future. Yet life's disappointments have made him cynical, have made him doubtful, and his mind wanders. And your minds wander every Sunday morning when you sit in this room, don't they? And when I mention the Christmas season and the holidays and I have presents and trees and lights, did you start to think about that? Did a knot form in your stomach a little bit? Did your throat catch up, catch a little bit, right? Our circumstances feel more true than who God is and than what he's done. He is going through the motions of worship, but his heart remains unengaged. He is not ready for the coming of the Lord. Now, we need to see all this because our hearts are not ready for the coming of the Lord. We need to understand what God does with Zechariah. How does God respond to his people 
when he's faced with their unbelief. What does he do right here? He gives them what he wants, doesn't he? He says, I'll give you a sign, right? It's a sign he wanted, but not the one he expected. He was made mute and deaf for nine months till everything came to pass that the Lord said would come to pass. Now, there are two faulty interpretations here that we need to guard ourselves against that I want to point out. The first bad interpretation is that that's just how God is, right? Ha ha, gotcha. I had to give you a little bit of good news, but you're going to go deaf and mute, right? That's just how God is. When push comes to shove, he's just downright cruel, right? He uh, gives us an inch but takes back the mile, right? He jumps at the opportunity to let the other shoe drop. He's vindictive. He's waiting to punish us, right? He hesitantly and uh, and he hesitantly gives us a little bit of good gifts, but he's just waiting with that with that paddle, with that rod, waiting to discipline us again, right? As soon as we fail, he's quick to drop the hammer because he only teaches us harsh le- lessons. The second, the second. Uh, that we need to guard against, bad interpretation, is this is Zachariah's problem. This should have all been so easy, right? Like an angel standing in front of him. He should have just had more faith. God's done this before. He'd read his Bible. He just needed to pray and have more faith, right? That's the interpretation that makes faith sound so easy and doubt so silly. That's the interpretation that we often turn to when we judge others, when we see that they're doubting or struggling, right? Gosh, same story, broken record. I'm so sick of hearing this. I got to get together with these people at Christmas time again, but they just can't get out of this rut. They repeat the same cycle over and over again. I don't even want to be around them. I don't even want to be near them. Why can't they just get their act together? Why don't they just believe? Read your Bible, pray, and believe God, right? It's easy. But both of these interpretations are wrong. Now, the first one's wrong because that's just not how God works. The second one's wrong because that's just not how we work. We all struggle with doubt. We all struggle with unbelief at times. So, Why would God make Zechariah deaf and mute? It was to prepare him for the coming of the Lord, right? It was to make his heart ready. Zechariah needed to re-engage with the Lord. He needed to re-encounter the one who all those stories were about. He needed to rediscover the character of his God. So Zechariah is mute and deaf so that he might encounter and he would be made ready for the coming of the Lord. So all that roteness, all that routine, all that going through the motions of worship might turn into rejoicing. You see, we can't just view this story historically. We have to view it spiritually as well. We have to understand why the place of silence is a significant place. Isaiah prophesied to those who had forgotten the power of the Lord that it was in quietness 
that they would find strength and rediscover the Lord. In Lamentations, Jeremiah said that in the darkness of this life's misery, wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Sit in silence so that you may, might rediscover hope, hope in him. So what do we see here? We see God bringing silence upon Zechariah. There's no other choice, right? You will sit quietly. You will wait in silence. Silence of speech, silence of sound. He brought utter silence upon Zechariah so that his hope might be renewed and his faith restored so that he might encounter the Lord his God. Zechariah is now placed in a situation where the only one who can hear him is God. Who listen, he's the God who listens to the heart. He's the God who hears the desire of our souls. And that muteness is because God wanted to talk with Zechariah. He wanted to remove all other conversation partners. No one else. That deafness would have drowned out the world, removed all the other voices so that Zechariah could listen, could sit and listen for the voice of the Lord. So these nine months of silence would have allowed Zechariah to take in the world a little bit differently. You know, they say when you lose certain, sentence, lose certain senses, other senses become more acute. So here he loses the ability to speak and the ability to hear and instead, his spiritual senses become attuned. But not only his spiritual senses, his sight. He looked at his wife, Elizabeth, in a new way. He would have sat in silence and watched his wife's belly grow with each passing week. He would have seen that smile on her face after years and years of heartache and disappointment. A smile he'd never seen before. Because that's a mother's smile. He would have watched her as her shame was removed. He would have rediscovered the character of his God who brought such joy upon his wife. And he would have read his scriptures. He would have encountered the God of promise over and over again through the stories of the Old Testament. And he would have gone over that message of the angel Gabriel in his mind over and over and over again, and he would have found meaning. And he would have heard God saying, is anything too wonderful for me, Zechariah? Is anything beyond my power? Do I not do exactly what I say? Am I not worthy of your trust? So if this muteness and deafness was simply meant to be a punishment, it doesn't make sense in, the, in light of the rest of the story. This was no punishment at all. Because in the silence, Zechariah encountered the Lord. He meditated on God's word. He met the God of all those stories. He rediscovered the God that was missing in his worship. Christmas isn't just about the trees. It isn't just about the lights. It isn't just about those Hallmark movies, guys. Advent is meant to be a time when we rediscover the God of Christmas, right? He, redis he rediscovered the power and character of God who he doubted. 
When John was born almost a year later and Zachariah's tongue is finally loosened, what does he do? His hearing's restored, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he breaks out in prophecy about the Lord, his God, and the wonder of the work he was doing, and he speaks about God's character and love for his people. All these things that God had been working in his heart over the past nine months finally came out, right? And Zechariah met his God anew. Through that silence, Zechariah had been prepared for the way of the Lord. How about you? How are you entering the Advent season this year? Does Zechariah's story maybe feel a little bit too close to home? We're entering this season where we celebrate the reality of Christ's coming, and yet maybe your heart meets it with a sigh. Don't get me wrong, we enjoy all the trappings and traditions of, of Christmas in our culture and our home too. We're not here to say you shouldn't put up a tree, but that's not Christmas. That's not what Advent is about, right? But we accumulate so many disappointments, we feel the pressure of so much expectation, and over the year, that just builds and grows until finally cynicism and doubt kind of settle in, don't they? Sure, we know the stories of God's power, but our problems feel more true, right? More true than anything that God might do. We've been going through the motions of worship. Our prayers have become rote, empty routine. For some of us, the holidays are actually the darkest period of time of the year because of who's with us or who's not with us, because of our experiences as young people. But Advent reminds us of how our God works. His light shines in darkness. He appears in the quiet stillness of a stable in the dead of night. And he invites us to draw near to him in the silence. So if what's true of Zachariah is true of you, then let this story be an invitation. Rediscover the Lord your God so that your heart might rejoice once again. What if you too encountered him in silence? God's not going to strike you mute or deaf for the next nine months. No, that's not what I'm saying. But what if this Advent season, you took just a little bit of time each day when you wake up, before you go to bed, in the shower, as you're driving in your car, as you sit down for your meal? And what if you too encounter him in silence, right? What if this Advent season, we sit and be still before the Lord? Because what would we be doing? That silence is choosing to go mute to all other conversation partners and finally engaging with the one that we need to have conversation with, right? It's shutting off the endless voices of the world, going deaf to it, to the distractions and chaos, and listen for the voice of the Lord your God again. The silence is an act of faith. Even when your faith seems to run dry, because you are saying, I know I need you more than anything else in this world. In the midst of the problems, in the midst of the anxieties, in the midst of the chaos, 
I need you. Here I am, Lord. Luke opens his gospel this way because we all need to be prepared for the coming of the Lord. And the need for silence continues to echo throughout his gospel because silence, we find out, is something that even Jesus himself needed. Luke tells us multiple times Jesus would regularly withdraw the desolate places to pray. He found in those desolate places the mute that, so that he could go mute and deaf to the world and find God in the silence. For both Jesus and Zechariah, it was in that silence that the heart of their heavenly father was turned towards them. It's in silence that it's turned towards you. It's in silence that it's turned towards his children. And it's where our hearts are turned to our father. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you call us to be prepared for your coming, that you remind us of your promises and that the rote rote actions and the routine worship that we find ourselves in is not enough, that we need to re-engage with you, that our hearts need to be woken up And yet we can't do it by ourselves. Just like Zechariah, we need you to break into our lives and speak fresh and anew to us. And so we pray, Father God, that you would help us to practice silence, that you would help us to sit and wait quietly, and that as we do, that we would find our eyes opened and our hearts made anew, that we would re-encounter your power your goodness, your promises, and your love towards us, Father God. We are thankful for this Advent season and all that it means. And we are thankful, Father God, that you are a God who has broken into the world for the glory of God and the life of the world. Amen.